Dear Father, prepare our hearts, Lord, for your word. Prepare us to hear truth, but prepare, prepare us, Father, with courage to do as we learn. And um, give us a, a sense of curiosity, Father, that we would understand what you've put in this uh, book for our needs. Father, don't give us a sense of arrogance or a sense in which we have already figured it out, Father, but let us be teachable. Help us to know the truth. And then in what we learn, Father, I pray you'd also give us a heart that uh, recognizes that we put to work what you give us so that we can please you. And there are things we'll learn that will cause us to think twice about who we are and what we do. For that's the intended purpose of the word. Let it have that effect in our heart. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we taught through the book of Judges, we finished the story of Samson. We saw the end of his life. And with him, we have ended the study of the Judges. In the book of Judges. As you can plainly see, though, we still have five chapters left in the book. So you're wondering, what's left to study if we're done looking at the Judges? Well, the answer is, there's a lot left in this book, actually. And to follow what comes next in this study, I have to spend a few minutes with you this morning resetting the timeline of the book and to give you a better sense of the writer's purpose as he moves ahead now in the study. And to do that, let's begin by remembering where we were at the outset of the study of Judges. We said at the outset that this book covers about 300 years of history in the nation of Israel. And that's principally the history of the Judges. Do you know who the last judge is? I'll give you a hint. He's not in this book. Samuel. Samuel is the last judge in the period of Judges. He's the bridge between the time of Judges and the monarchy in Israel. So you can see already that this book is not all-inclusive in terms of every judge. It serves a purpose And the purpose of this book is to explain the nature of the times in which these men ruled, the limitations of their effort in ruling, and what that has to say about ultimately what's required if we're to bring a nation like Israel into righteousness. What makes people do what God requires? Well, as you've learned already in the first 16 chapters, it's not been these men, certainly, these judges. We've moved more or less chronologically through the 300 years of judges in the first 16 chapters of the book. And so I think it would be natural for you to assume that, well, whatever's coming next, these next five chapters, they must also continue chronologically forward. But that would not be correct. Chapters 17 through 21, the last five chapters, they go back in time. So we're going to go backward to periods of time that relate to some of the previous judges that we've already studied. Now, the story of the judge himself has already been told, so you will see no more judges mentioned in these chapters. We don't need to. We already know what happened to them. Instead, we need to understand something else, something more important than the judges themselves, something concerning Jewish society. So you're going to go behind the scenes with me, behind the scenes of Jewish society, to document the internal strife and the deterioration of Israel's culture, their religious, civil, and domestic life, to see what was really going on among the people in the same time as these judges. But there's even more going on here. The five chapters that end Judges are actually parts one and two of a three-part story. They're parts one and two of a three-part story in the Old Testament. The first part is chapters 17 and 18, the next two chapters we study. And in this first part, you're going to see how idolatry was introduced into the nation of Israel at the hands of two tribes, Ephraim and Dan. The second part of this story that I'm referring to, it's the next three chapters, 19 through 21, the end of the book of Judges. And in those chapters, you're going to see the beginning of civil war among the tribes of Israel 
at the hands of the Benjamites. Now, we've already studied idolatry in this story of the Judges, right? We've already looked at how idolatry was part of the pattern of their fall. And, of course, we've already seen civil war featured in the story of some of the earlier Judges. But now, friends, you're going to get the background story on how those destructive things happen to find their way into Jewish society. But I said there's three parts, right? And we've just concluded the book of Judges with part two. So where's the third part of this three-part story that I'm talking about? Well, it's in the book of Ruth. It's in what follows immediately after Judges. The book of Ruth is written by the same author, Samuel. It's set in the same period of history as the time of Judges. And so it is the third sketch of Jewish life in this three-part story, in these three sketches. In the story of Ruth, you're given the one and only solution to the problems of Israel's deteriorating culture. In the story of Ruth, you find a child born in Bethlehem, a child that will lead to a king, a king who will one day save Israel from idolatry, from civil war, from disobedience, from death. Rather than a people who do what is right in their own eyes, Israel will become a people redeemed and made righteous. And therefore, as we finish this study of Judges in the coming weeks, we're going to move directly into a study of Ruth after that, because the two together are actually one story. That's all ahead of us. Let's go back to where we are today. Let's move to just part one today. The story of how Dan and Ephraim introduced the worship of graven images into the life of Israel. Start in verse one. Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the story that we're learning here in Judges 17, it's set in roughly the latter half of the time of Judges. And we know that because later in the story you're going to see that there were Philistines involved. So this is during the period of history in which the Philistines were opposing Israel. That didn't come along until about the later half of the time of Judges. So once again, though, the timing isn't that important. The events of the story are important. I want you to think about this account and the one that will follow in chapters 19 through 21 as standalone stories, sort of like the story of Ruth itself. All three parts to this three-part story are standalone sketches of Jewish life with a moral, with a very important moral behind the story. You begin here with this account, Israel in the heartland here. In fact, all three of these stories are set in the heartland of Israel, and there's something important to that. The hill country of Ephraim, in this case, it's the geographical center of the nation. What the stories are telling us is these are not fringe cases, geographically or socially. They're at the heart of what was going on in the nation at the time. You have, in this case, a son named Micah. And he goes to his mother one day and he confesses to his mother that 
He had stolen 1,100, 1,100 pieces of silver from her. And when the silver had turned up missing in the first place, the mother had uttered a curse upon whoever it was who had taken it from her. Now the son comes to her revealing, I took the silver. Now it would seem based on the context that the son's confession is prompted by a motivation to avoid the curse that his mother has pronounced on whoever did it. Now looking at a curse for a second, a curse is literally the opposite of a blessing in scripture it is the withholding of god's favor instead of the giving of favor only god can put power behind the words of a curse or a blessing so let's be clear on this it's not an incantation it's not mystery it's not magic i can say curse or i can say blessing it won't be so unless the lord himself chooses to do the work of that effect which would mean unless i speak it in his will it's just words just because someone says a curse or a blessing to you doesn't mean it's going to happen unless the lord agrees with it and chooses to carry it out. But when someone speaks under the influence of the Holy Spirit, well then obviously the words have power because God is working in that. In this case, because it's recorded in Scripture, and because of the son's response, the mother's curse appears to be prophetic. And that's not only because I'm assuming it, but it's because of what will happen to this son later and how it affects Israel overall. In this case, the son Micah, whose name means one who is like Yahweh, couldn't get more ironic than that, right? One who is like Yahweh. It's clearly an ironic name. It's one of the many details in this story that are ironic, actually. It reflects the, the whole nation in some sense, because you have the corruption and the duplicity of the nation evident in the story of this one character. So you got Micah, who is a man willing to steal from his own mother. Stealing's bad enough. He takes it from mom. And to show you how corrupt the society is, how backwards it is, when he finally confesses his sin to his mother to avoid the fear of being cursed, what happens? Mom acts as if nothing bad has happened. In fact, she blesses him and says literally blesses her son in the name of Yahweh. So earlier, she cursed him, presumably by the power of Yahweh, because she lost her silver. Now she's willing to bless him because she gets her silver back. What you see there is that she worships not Yahweh, but her silver. That's clear, isn't it? In fact, you can detect a superstitious quality to her worship because she looks at the Lord no longer according to his word, but only according to circumstance and her desires. So if someone takes my silver, well, then the Lord better go get them for me. And if I get my silver back, well, then everything's fine. It's all about the silver. Israel has come to relate to Yahweh, it would seem, much like the culture relates to any other pagan god. There's nothing unique about their style of worship. The son's evil heart is easy to see because he took from his own mother. But now look at the mother's corrupt heart and the way she responds to her son and what she does with the silver. She does not correct her son, which would have been what you might do under those circumstances. Wouldn't you agree? And then you notice what she says in response to getting her silver back. She says, well, I'm going to devote this to the Lord and create a graven image in his honor. We'll get to that in a minute. But she says she's going to devote all of it. How much did she actually devote? 200 of the 1100. I guess when it got down to it, she's like, you know, you don't need all of that for God. So she only gives 200 of the pieces in this pious effort. And she says, I want the silversmith to make two things. I want to make a carved image. I want to make a molten or cast image. So basically you're talking about something that is carved versus something that is cast by pouring molten liquid into a form. She wants two. We're not sure where these are, what these sacred images would have been, but perhaps the carved image would have been more like what we saw at the mountain with Moses and calf, etc. And that would mean the molten image might have been more a base or something to set the calf on. We don't know. Just a guess. Either way, what is she doing? 
She's violating the second commandment, which is to not make any graven image. So she steals from God because she made a vow and she wouldn't keep it. And then she turns that material into something idolatrous. What kind of heart do you think believes that the Lord is pleased by worship that acts in direct disobedience to his commands? What kind of heart reconciles those two and finds them compatible with one another? Obviously, the answer is she doesn't possess a heart to know or please God at all. In fact, I doubt she knows who the living God is in that sense. What she's doing is acting entirely in superstition. Although it's easy to look at her from a distance and look down at her as this poor, misguided, corrupt individual that she is, don't overlook the fact that we can sometimes venture into the same space she's living in right now, if just in behavior not in belief, because we can call sin something else in the hope that the Lord will accept it anyway. Because you can't approach God on your own terms. You know, when God says something, it matters. You have to conduct yourself according to what He says. You can't change the rules to suit your purpose and then still assume that God's going to be pleased because you're doing it in His honor, so to speak. You can't do what pleases you, then say, oh, but this is for the Lord. And then expect the Lord to say, oh, well, in that case, you do whatever you want. No, it doesn't work that way, and that's what she's thinking. You know, God's not mocked by that kind of foolishness. We're told that these idols were set up after they were made in a shrine in Micah's house, where he then begins to take his idol worship a step further. He starts to fancy himself a man of some importance. He begins to move from personal idol worship into doing things at a larger scale. He starts here by making copies of the implements that God gave Aaron and the nation of Israel and the priests for use in the tabernacle. You notice he makes an ephod. An ephod was that ornate robe that the high priest would wear with all the the stuff on it. So he makes one of those for himself. And then he makes more idols, it says. And then he takes one of his sons and he says, I need a priest. Son, you're going to be a priest. Really, Dad? Yeah, you're my priest. He's directly violating Deuteronomy 12, not to say nothing of the Ten Commandments, because in Deuteronomy 12, the Lord forbids multiplying the sanctuaries that he gave Israel while they live in Canaan. But he's going beyond that. You can see the deceitfulness of sin in his heart. Think about the chain of events. His greed led him to steal from his mother. His theft resulted in a curse, which he then tried to undo by confessing to his mother. But when his mother failed to hold him accountable for his sin, well, what did that do? It emboldened him, in a sense. It caused him to believe he was immune from the consequences of sin. I can do what I want. Everything works out okay. I'll just keep doing more of what I want. And that pride leads him to act with such impunity that now he can make his own gods, he can engage in his own worship, set up his own house of worship, be his own priest, put on the ephod, look at me. It's pride just wrapped up in this veneer of godliness. I want you to notice, Micah's not less religious because he's sinful. He's not less pious because of his heart. It's actually the opposite of anything. He's more religious after all of this experience, right? But what his religion is, is only an expression of pride and ego. He's not worshiping Yahweh. He's worshiping himself. And in that sense, he becomes a poster child for Israel. That's the point of introducing him into the story of Judges. Micah is a picture of what's going on in the hearts of all Israel. He's a literal character. He actually lived. These stories are real. But the story itself is a perfect embodiment of what was going on across the culture. In fact, notice where Samuel inserts his customary signature line in verse 6. 
emphasizing the universality of Micah's sin. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. No one had a king to keep them in check. This is the kind of nonsense that was going on. That's the footnote from Samuel. In Micah's eyes, it was right to have idols. In Micah's eyes, it was right to dress his son up as a priest, even though his son was not a Levite. And it was right for him to conduct religious service under his own terms to declare that he was worshiping the living God, even though he was doing everything he could to offend that same God. In Micah's eyes, no contradictions, no problems. Works out great. This is where idolatry began in the nation of Israel. Now, it's not the first time that Israel's bowed its knee to images. We know that happened back in Exodus, right? But this is the moment when the society within Israel began to view such things as compatible with worship of Yahweh, as a form of worship for Yahweh. And that thinking will continue to grow in the coming centuries within Israel, and it begins to affect all corners of the nation. It only comes to its end after the Babylonian captivity. That's what finally puts an end to idol worship in the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes into the land, he doesn't come into an Israel that's worshiping idols. It's still an unbelieving generation for the most part, but, but he doesn't see idol worship. That's been extinguished. But it began here. And now you get to see how it propagated out from his family. Verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Well, then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Benjamin in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. So in verse 17, we're introduced to a Levite who lived in Bethlehem in Judah. Now you recognize the importance of the city of Bethlehem, obviously, right? From the story of Jesus. This city not only is the birthplace of God's chosen king for Israel in the sense of Jesus, but it's also, of course, the city of David, the man who pictures Jesus. But it's a key element in these three parts of this story I just mentioned. In fact, it is the linking element of all three. You'll see the city mentioned here in the account of Ephraim and Dan's idolatry. The story of the Benjamite civil war that follows is also centered on Bethlehem. And then, of course, the story of Ruth is centered on Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the key. Now, why? Why is that city a linking feature between the three parts of this story? Well, Israel's sin cannot be corrected by human judges. We've learned this now throughout the first parts of this book. doesn't matter how many judges you get, how strong they are, how smart they are, you cannot control the sin of the human heart with human judges. Cross that one off your list. In the story of First and Second Samuel, you discover that kings can't do it either. You can make a man a king if you want, and it's not going to change the sin of the human heart. Time and time again, men fail to curb the sin of a nation of sinful people. Later, when Israel looks for a king, they're going to do exactly the same thing that judges has shown us. They're going to do what was right in their own eyes by picking a man who looks the part but doesn't have any of the inner qualities. That is Saul. 
That only proves that you're going to have to look outside the human heart to find a solution to the sin of Israel. And where are you going to find that solution? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, you're going to find Israel's Messiah one day from the city of David, and that's the solution. So for reasons that aren't important in this story, you find this man, a Levite, encountering Micah, having traveled away from where? Away from Bethlehem. You note that? The man wanders away from his home in Bethlehem to stumble upon Micah along the way. That detail is an allusion to his spiritual journey. He left the home of God's future anointed. He's fallen. He's stumbled into the hands of the man of idolatry and false worship. And as a result, this man becomes a picture of all Israel, walking away from the Lord and becoming ensnared by the sin of idolatry. That story is going to get even worse in the second part, in the Benjamite Civil War. And it will finally see its solution proposed in the story of Ruth, when a child will be born. Back to the story once more. To finish it, you have a Levite. Friends, not every Levite is a priest. This man is a Levite, but he's not called a priest in the story. In other words, he is descended from Levi. That makes him a Levite. But he's never formally been made a priest. All priests must be Levites. But not all Levites are priests. Being a priest is a job, and not every Levite got that job. But you can only choose priests from the Levite tribe. So this man was not currently a priest. He was not qualified. He'd never been consecrated as such. He's your random Levite from Judah who happens to wander into Micah's home. But when Micah learns that this man is a Levite and is in need of a place to stay, Micah sees an opportunity here to upgrade his family priest. Right now he's just got his son doing the job. Who knows? The son might have been like 15. Who knows what he had? But even a man like Micah, with all his self-deception and his warped sense of how to worship, even he knew that the correct tribe for priests was Levi. So when he selected his son earlier, even though his son was not a Levite, what was he telling himself? Here's what I'm betting. I'm betting he was saying, well, you know, it's the best I have. I've got no better option. Which is a lie, because you do have a better option than sinning, right? He could have done nothing. That would have been better. But in his mind, he needed a priest. And if you're going to have to have a priest and there's no Levite available, well, I guess Junior will have to do. That's, that's his mindset, right? So he picks an Ephraimite. Now, though, he has a bona fide Levite. Just walked right into his living room. And he opts to improve on his self-made religious system by taking in the Levite in place of Junior because he feels what? What does that do? I mean, as ridiculous as the whole thing sounds to us, right? Don't laugh too quickly because people do this all the time. They've always done this. Cain. Cain's chief sin in chapter 4 of Genesis was pretending to worship God, but doing it on his own terms rather than doing it in the way God had commanded that it be done. He was offering an offering of the wrong kind. And that was the critique that God put back on him, right? Men have always done this. We want a certain thing our own way, and we call it God's way so that we can do it and feel less guilt over it. If Cain, or Micah for that matter, weren't willing to worship God in the right way, in the way God prescribed, then you might ask, well, why didn't they just abandon the pretense altogether? Why not just cease with the whole of it? Why even bother with it? If you don't want to do it the way God said, why worship anything? Just go do what you want. The answer is because men have a subconscious awareness that they are in debt to God. Our conscience convicts us. And as long as you feel the need for reconciliation, that vulnerability causes you to turn your mind toward God, at least to some degree. But unless your heart is truly repentant, 
as led there by the Spirit, well then what comes of that desire is something of your own making. People have done this for, for all since Cain. We make up our own way to God rather than to submit to Him in His Word. That's Micah's heart. So he's excited to receive a Levite because in his system, in his heart, this will now bring him closer to God. He's a step closer. But friends, if you notice, it's only in external ways that he's closer. It's like the Mormon religion. Exactly like the Mormon religion. Something that is carefully calibrated to counterfeit Jewish worship. Have you ever noticed that? They have buildings they call temples. They have men who attend to them they call priests. And in the ceremonies that they conduct, if you do a little research on what they do, they borrow heavily from Jewish practice. And they're trying to counterfeit the whole Jewish system again. That's what Micah's doing. But it's all external. They intend to convey a sense of legitimacy and piety by doing something that on the outside looks really religious and pious, but on the inside is completely bankrupt. It's completely without meaning. And we see this all the time in man-made religion. People substitute the external for the internal that they don't have. They substitute the image for the substance that they lack. They substitute ego for the repentance that they do not feel. They substitute self for God. That's what Micah is doing. In verse 10, he offers a job to the Levite. And it's an offer this Levite can't refuse. I mean, after all, you're talking about a homeless, penniless man being offered a place to live and full-time employment. So from his point of view, I'm sure he said, well, why wouldn't I take this gig? Sounds like a good job. But for Micah, this Levite means supernatural blessing, and it's actually superstitious. In verse 13, he says, well, surely now the Lord's going to bless me. Why? I mean, what's the logic? Well, because I've employed a Levite as a priest. So you get a sense of the sliding scale that dominates this man's thinking. If he acts in ways that are a little closer to God's instructions, then he's going to please God a little more. Now, do you ever think like that, even as a Christian sometimes? This idea that if I operate closer to God's rules, then I'm going to get that much more blessing for being that much more closer? Friends, that's moral relativism. Following God is not horseshoes. Close doesn't count. You you see what I'm saying? Now, because of our faith in Jesus Christ... We don't even have to make an effort to get close. We've been put right on the mark because we receive Christ's righteousness. And it's by His righteousness that we are counted worthy of salvation and the kingdom and the inheritance and all the rest, right? So we're not talking here about how you become one with God, right with God. We know that we are there by Christ's work alone. But in the way we please God in our life, there's still this sense sometimes that, you know, I know the mark is there. I mean, that's what holiness requires. That's what the Bible asks me to do. I'll do this much. God's certainly happy about that, right? Because I'm a little closer. Well, if you could have gone the whole way and you chose to go halfway, he's no happier than if you had stayed where you were. I mean, you're not doing anything except serving yourself at that point. That's moral relativism. It's a complete fiction. This man is disobeying the Lord's commands in so many ways and to so many degrees, we probably couldn't even count them all if we had all morning. He's worshiping idols. He's operating this little pagan worship shrine business out of his home. He's declaring it to be a proper house of worship in disobedience to the law. He has consecrated unqualified men to serve as so-called priests who do not meet the qualifications and are not serving in the right place. His whole system is sort of a faint resemblance of something God has asked for And yet, in his mind, he's playing horseshoes. He's gotten close. That's got to be good enough. God's happy with me. Friends, obedience 
according to Scripture, is a point. It's not a scale. It's a point. You are either obedient to some specific command or you're not. And I know that in many cases our efforts are to get there and it takes time. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is, are you trying? The issue is, do you have that goal in mind? Do you know where the goal is? Or are you redefining it to suit your own purpose? And then when you get there, you're happy and content that you've got what you asked for. It comes down to whether you're serving God or serving yourself. When someone comes to know the Lord truly and seeks to please Him, that person will seek to move in God's direction because they know that's what God wants. They'll go, as it were, toward Bethlehem, to use the analogy in the story. And as you move toward God in faith and obedience, you steadily have to be leaving behind your own ways. This man could not be in Micah's house and in Bethlehem at the same time. Again, to use the metaphor. Likewise, you cannot find room in your life for the things you know God detests and call it acceptable to God because you're, quote, trying. That's not how God works. We need to stop declaring our sin to be good. We need to hate it as much as the Lord does. And in its place, we have to adopt God's heart and God's mind from the study of Scripture because over time, that's how you become more like Him. And that's how you please Him. As we end here then, just know that we've got only to the beginning of this story. We've seen the sketch of a man who by his influence is going to bring Israel into idolatry. Next week in chapter 18, you'll see how it goes out from his house to the nation. Let's consider in our own life, are we propagating the truth and obedience that God has called us to know and and to follow, or have we substituted it with things of our own desire? Let's consider that this week as we go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for our patience this morning with, um, with so many things we wanted to do in your honor today, Father, and you gave us the time to do it and the patience to concern ourselves with it. I pray, Father, that none of it would have been rushed past us so that we don't have time to contemplate its importance. The the rise of a man into eldership, our commitment to serve him and be served by him, our concern with the needs of those in ministry outside this country, those we support in missions, our concern for your word, for what it says about us and our life and how we live, and follow with the prayers that we will offer here in a minute, our concern for those in need around us. I pray, Father, we've, um, we have our minds set on all of these things, for that's why you gather us. Most of all, Father, I pray that we would have a heart that wants to obey and please you. For if we have that heart, Father, we will be moving towards you. And that's a heart you can do a lot with to your glory. We want to be useful to you in that way, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.